I'm Dr Zoe Jakes, a lecturer in children's literature in the Faculty of Education. My research considers fiction for children from 1800 to the present, and in particular I address how children's fantasy explores questions of what it means to be human. Here, R is for Rabbit, I'll be discussing the bunny's crucial place in the history of children's literature. The first fictional rabbit that springs to my mind is Lewis Carroll's Curious Bunny from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, whose 150th anniversary we celebrated at Homerton College last year. The white rabbit sparks Alice's fantastical journey, and she encounters him many times across Wonderland. What first captures Alice's interest is that, like so many other literary bunnies, the white rabbit has human-like upright movement and curious attire. This rabbit, she notes, sports a waistcoat and carries a pocket watch. To Neil's original illustration of the rabbit, faithful in every detail to Carol's text, is probably the best known, although Walt Disney's animated version gives Tennille a run for his money. Like Tennille's, the 1951 Disney White Rabbit bears a jacket and carries an umbrella, but he gains trousers to cover the modesty of a bare rabbit bottom. Other illustrators have invested the White Rabbit with all manner of additional traits, from Arthur Rackham's slightly eerie-looking version of 1907 through to Ralph Steadman's 1967 rendering of him as today's commuter, or Helen Oxenbury's more kindly, portly gentleman of 1999. What is clear in most iterations of Carol's White Rabbit is that he is not to be regarded as a pet, even if his white coat and pink eyes are suggestive of the iconic family bunny. A hare features in Aesop's fables, although these tales don't really become associated with a young audience until the late 17th century. Certainly rabbits are mentioned in 18th century lesson books for children, but Lewis Carroll's White Rabbit is an early example of a rabbit character in texts specifically for children. Rabbits remain very popular in British children's fiction. They feature prominently in A.A. A. Milne's Pooh books, Alice and Utley's Little Grey Rabbit series, Ivy Wallace's Pookie stories, Richard Adams's Watership Down, and, of course, Beatrix Potter's Tales. But they also have a broader heritage. The Peter Rabbit stories owe a great deal to Br'er Rabbit in the African-American folktales adapted by Joel Chandler Harris in the late 19th century. Beatrix Potter even illustrated eight scenes from the Br'er Rabbit and Remus stories in the same years as she began her first sketches of Peter. The contexts of the tales are entirely different, but Potter's Peter recalls Br'er Rabbit in action, attitude and even in gait. While Br'er Rabbit moves with a lippity-clippity pace across the American South, Peter goes lippity-lippity through the English country garden. America also gives us a host of other infamous bunnies. From 1910, Howard R. Garris wrote the Uncle Wiggily Longears stories about an elderly rabbit with a cane. The toy rabbit made real is a poignant motif of Marjorie Williams's 1922 The Velveteen Rabbit. And Margaret Wise Brown produced a number of bunny picture books. Walt Disney was also something of a pioneer when it came to the rabbit. Mickey Mouse began life as Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So although these rabbits might be distinct from their British cousins, there has certainly been interest across the Atlantic in anthropomorphising rabbits in narrative. The bunny is a pliable cultural referent, able to represent local attitudes in ways that belie a fixed tradition. This fascination is not an exclusively Western phenomenon. Chinese, Japanese and Korean folklore include tales of the moon rabbit, as does Buddhist tradition. Nevertheless, some rabbits have become very much part of British culture. The peculiarly British charm of Beatrix Potter's tales make them immensely popular from the moment of their publication. More than 56,000 copies of The Tale of Peter Rabbit were printed in its first year of commercial sale. Both Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Beatrix Potter's tales appeal to a particular notion of childhood, which may or may not have a great deal to do with real rabbits. 
Alice's curiosity, piqued by spying the white rabbit, and Peter's charming disobedience, make for two particularly compelling child characters. The interest in rabbits and developing them into characters is perhaps rather a curious phenomenon in British culture. Rabbits occupy an almost untenable position as animals that we eat, experiment on, own as pets, and make into characters in children's books, all within the same cultural context. They are one of the few mammals to occupy all of these distinct subject positions simultaneously. Some of this awkwardness emerges in Potter's tale of Peter Rabbit, when Peter is threatened by the consumptive appetites of Mr McGregor, or, more truthfully, his wife, who had baked Peter's father in a pie. This accident is a light-hearted threat, but nevertheless it exposes the multifarious ways in which the rabbit is deployed in British culture, from a foodstuff, to a domesticated creature, to an anthropomorphic character aligned with the child reader. The naughty rabbit is a popular motif, although the rabbit has broader associations, including as an arbiter of moral good. The Easter Bunny, originally a hare, was once known for his judgments on children's behaviour at Eastertide and handing out gifts accordingly. Rabbits in children's fiction sometimes assume a rather saccharine sweetness. The Flopsy, Mopsies and Cottontails, perhaps, when compared to the Peters. The toy rabbit of Marjorie Williams's tale navigates this line quite effectively. The Velveteen Rabbit is no rascal, but he isn't insipid either, and his tale of becoming a real rabbit is marked by its frank depiction of a child's waning affections, which might well apply to a toy rabbit or a pet one. Rabbits are also associated with luck. Disney's Oswald is a lucky rabbit. Br'er Rabbit proves himself a lucky escape artist, as of course does Peter. And the lucky rabbit's foot is a tradition that exists in many cultures, although not so lucky for the rabbit in question, of course. The humanised bunny is also part of a much wider tradition of anthropomorphic children's stories, many of which assume the point of view of an animal. The animal autobiography has a long history, made most famous by Anna Sewell in her 1877 Black Beauty, but including earlier texts such as Francis Coventry's The History of Pompeii the Little, 1751, or Dorothy Kilner's The Life and Perambulations of a Mouse from 1783. There is something irresistible about the notion that certain humans are able to talk to animals in their own language, but it is also a practice in everyday communication with pets and young children. We converse with babies and pets, assuming both sides of the conversation and translating the actions of the child, dog or cat into a response. On the one hand, these acts of translation might be considered reductive in that they communicate an animal or child voice only through an adult human one. But they also bespeak an interest in reaching across a divide to know another untranslatable being. The representation of animals in literature works in much the same way, often making animals parrot human concerns. Black Beauty, for example, is as much attuned to the subjugation of women as with equine welfare. Animals can thus provide a veneer for human narratives, as in political satires such as in George Orwell's Animal Farm from 1945, or autobiographical tales such as Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling of 1843. Yet I would argue that it is impossible to use an animal only as a symbol for something else. Animal representation automatically stimulates reflection upon real animals and their relations with human readers or viewers, even if that is not the primary purpose of the narrative. When animals are depicted in clothing, we might argue that there is merely a romantic charm to it. There is a gaiety to a text like William Roscoe's The Butterfly Ball of 1807, where animals are dressed up as humans to indulge in the delights of parties. Something similar occurs in the messing about in boats of Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows from 1908, although this text is also invested in moments of parody and nostalgia. The same impulses inflect narratives of toys coming to life, or of miniature communities like those in Mary Norton's Borrower books. There is a pervasive critical view that using animals also makes a moral tale a little more palatable. 
Although dressing an animal up might bring human and animal closer in some ways, there is still a distancing that can lighten narrative didacticism. Humans are the only animals that can ever be made naked, and clothing animals introduces some rather awkward and demeaning constructions of the animal, which can dislocate the creatures from their natures for distinctly human ends. But dressing animals up as humans also offers a playful engagement with the boundary between the human and the animal, a line which is both well-established and rather strange, given that humans are, of course, just one of many mammals. By imagining ways in which non-human animals can be human-like, this boundary becomes much more permeable. Although dressing as a human might have little to do with animal subjectivity, it brings humans and animals into a closer contact. It clouds the distinctions between humans and animals, and indeed, between animal species. I think one of the main reasons why animals are deployed in children's fiction so readily, whether in morality tales or otherwise, is because of the sense that there is a special closeness between children and animals that is lost in adulthood. Authors of children's books have capitalised on this connection. The animal story is almost entirely reserved for young readers, with the exception of the occasional satirical text in which animals play a part, but are rarely the focus. Part of the civilising process of growing up seems to be the putting away of childish things, towards an acceptance of a boundary between human and animal, with the former in a position of dominance over the other. This is perhaps why there are far fewer young adult fictions concerned with animals. It is a pity that the possibilities of the animal story are not more readily available to an adult audience too. Next in the Cambridge Animal Alphabet, S is for an animal that was the foundation of pre-industrial wealth and the subject of paintings by a visionary member of the ancients.